Good morning, everybody. How are we feeling today? Everybody good? I hope that uh, you got some good rest last night. Hope that there were no bad dreams, no nightmares. I apologize for jumping up here earlier with Sean. I just had a false start. I watched all, all that game last night and it just kind of got all over me. And so I'm sorry about that. I, um, but, but now we're ready. Now we're ready. Everybody's set. I think we're ready to go. Tim, was that bad for the Tennessee guys? That was bad. Yeah. Too soon. I know. Sorry about that. Oh, well, I, um, I kid because I lived that life too. I, I, I know what it's like, so it's all right. Hey, um, at EB, we are trying to build on what God has been doing in our midst here. We have a goal of becoming a faith community known for its outreach and its inreach to those who are under the age of 45. It is our big, hairy, audacious goal. That's kind of what we're referring to it as. It's our, it's our BHAG, as you see it up here on the screen. Now, it, as we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, I, I hope I've been able to get across the point that something we all need to understand is that this goal, this BHAG, is not something that is actually easily achieved. You see, generally speaking, the younger a person is, the more likely she is to be religiously unaffiliated. And there are very few boats, especially within, within our church fellowship, that's successfully fishing these waters. And the Christian community, with very few exceptions, has been hemorrhaging men and women for the last 25 years. And there's no secret sauce. There's no packaging. There's, there's no formula that guarantees success. But the good news that we have been trying to share over the last couple of weeks is that the followers of Jesus Christ have something good to share with the world. That there is a message that we have. There is something important that we have to share with others. And the first time that Jesus ever sent his students out on their own, well, Luke tells us that he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he then sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Luke says, well, they went out from the village and they went to the next village and they went to the next village and the next, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. You see, when those 12 left Jesus, they walked away with a ministry and a message. And when they entered into a village, they brought something that was tangible, something that could be experienced. When they sat down at a kitchen table or when they were there beside a hospital bed, they were not marketing or selling a, a new church model, a, a new way to do church. They were proclaiming God's kingdom rule by sharing healing and by sharing hope. And I don't think you have to be convinced that, that our society is in need of both of these things, right? I mean, think about it. Our society has a love problem. And our society has an anger problem, and our society has a mental health problem. Our society has a forgiveness problem and an acceptance problem. Our society has a value problem, a fear problem, an inclusion problem. And we cannot escape the fact that our society has a sin problem. But as followers of Jesus, we have good news. There is healing and there is hope within the family of God. We have that, a message and a ministry. And I really believe that we have been placed here 
right here in Chattanooga to be a faith community that offers healing and hope to generations of people who have been wounded by the attitudes and actions of a society that values humanistic indulgence over spiritual renewal. We are here for a purpose. We are here for a reason. And so last week we said that if we want to be able to better connect the next generation to Christ, then we must actively be sharing the healing and hope of Christ with the next generation. And what I want to do today is just dig a little bit deeper. Dig down a little bit deeper into this idea. You see, one day Jesus was worn out from a long journey, and so he sat down beside a well. And that well just happened to be in the region of Samaria. And even though Jews and Samaritans, they shared a similar and common land and heritage, they could not see past their differences. They each worshipped Jehovah God, but the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans, well, well, they read the writings of Moses. Well, the Jews read the writings of Moses also. But the Jews also read the prophets as well. And for centuries, these two groups just made a practice of despising and basically avoiding one another. So when Jesus was asked by a Samaritan woman who just happened to also be coming to the well that day for a drink of water, you could understand the surprise And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now you need to understand that beyond the ethnic issues, this was also a time and place when men did not talk to women who they did not know. And husbands would not speak publicly even to their own wives. This was just a society that that is prevalent This is what was taking place as Jesus was sitting here at the well. And so according to the social mores of the day, Jesus should not have been engaging in this conversation with this particular individual. In fact, later on in the story, Jesus' students arrived back at the well. They had gone off to get some food. And when they come back, John tells us that they were shocked to find that Jesus was talking to, wait for it, a woman. They were shocked. But talking, Jesus and this woman were. Please give me a drink, is how Jesus began the conversation. And we hear Jesus and we think, well, that makes sense, right? That is a reasonable and innocent request. He's thirsty. She's come to the water or to the well to get some water. How about sharing a cup? No big deal. However, I think there is more going on here than actually meets our Western eyes. Now, don't forget, the Jews and the Samaritans, they shared a love for the writings of Moses, what is known as Torah. And this isn't the first conversation between a man and a woman at a well. Because if you remember Torah, if you remember those first stories within your Old Testament, maybe you remember the story of Isaac and Rebekah. How that Isaac's father Abraham sent his servant out to find his wife or find a son or find a wife for his son. And the servant ends up at a well and he soon prays, O God of heaven, may it happen that when I approach a maiden and request, give me a drink, that the person who replies, Yes, my Lord, and may I give drink to your camels as well, well, may this be the person you have appointed to be Isaac's wife. Now, Naturally, that's not in our list of things that we look for these days when we're going out looking for a wife, someone that will give us a drink and water our camels. But apparently in this particular time, that was a really good thing. 
And it was high up on the list. And no sooner do the words fall from the servant's mouth than standing before him is young Rebecca. And guess what? Give me a drink, he says. And she replies, yes, my Lord, and may I give drink to your camels as well. Hallelujah. The perfect woman right here. Isaac and Rebecca at a well. Genesis 24. Well, do you remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? They also meet at a well. Jacob strolls up, rolls away the boulder covering the opening. He kisses his future wife. Jacob and Rachel are there at a well in Genesis 29. And do you know where Moses met Zipporah? Guess, at a well. Yeah, Exodus chapter 2. Woman at a well. Man approaches asking for water. Well, what do you expect? If you're a student of Torah, you are not out of line to anticipate a marriage proposal. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah. And now Jesus approaches this Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink. And so as you read this through a new set of eyes, you begin to think, wait a minute, is there a proposal or something that's about to happen? Is there a proposal that's coming here? I don't know if you realize this, but today our teens look forward to homecoming proposals with anxious anticipation. Now, I have been being schooled in this new art because actually, even as I have said this as a homecoming proposal, that's really not how they are known these days. It's now a hoko proposal or as I'm going to, I guess, forever now call it a hoko propo. That's what, that's what it is. That, that, that's what our kids are doing. That they, are, they are anxiously anticipating hoko propos. And, and they really just go over the top. I, I mean, the, the, the bigger, the better. I mean, you have to have confetti. There, there needs to be silly string. There, there needs to be some kind of a goofy poem that you can share with whoever it is that you're going to be talking to. And, um, and, and then there's got to be some sneaky friends involved. Because you've got to have those friends that will run cover for you. And, and who will say, look, over there. And all of a sudden, everybody looks over there. And then over here is this very awkward gentleman. Very awkward gentleman with a, with a sign <laughs> and some confetti and a hoko propo. Things have definitely changed through, through the years. I remember my first hoko propo. I received a phone call from Danita Sullins. Now, it was really strange to have received this phone call. By the way, she had called to ask me to be her escort for the Hansville Wee Wee and Pee Wee football homecoming. And the strange thing about the call was that we had an understanding. You see, even though she was my elementary girlfriend, we never talked. I mean, you laugh, but you've been there. You, you understand. I mean, we, we had this arrangement. I had walked in from lunch one day, and, and there on my desk was a, a nice folded up piece of paper. And I un unfolded it and, and, and mashed out all the wrinkles and then looked at it, and there on the paper it said, will you, go ahead, say it with me, go with me, check, yes, no, or maybe. 
Well, I saw that and thought, oh, it's, it's happening. It's real. And so I looked around to make sure that none of my buddies were watching. I, I quickly grabbed my pencil from underneath my desk and, and I, I began to, to shade in the area that was, that was yes. And I, I then folded up the letter really good and, and then I went and found one of Danita's good friends and handed her the letter. Because again, it was understood. You don't talk. You go together. I don't know where we were supposed to be going, but wherever we were going to go, it was going to be in silence. That was just how it was, it was just going to be. It was, it was understood. But then the phone rang, and my mother answered the phone. And then to my horror, she said, Chris, you have a phone call. Now, at that particular age, I usually got phone calls from uh, one of just a couple of people, my grandmother or my grandfather. That was just how it was. And so I assumed that was who was going to be on the other end of the line. And then I take the phone, that one with the long cord that my mother could stand there and swap back and forth against her. And I took the phone and I held it up and I was like, hello. And on the other end there was silence. Hello? And then I hear this mousy voice on the other end say, will you be my escort well, I thought it was strange that my grandmother was asking me such a question. And so I asked, well, who is this? She said, it's Danita. And I want to know if you will be my escort for the Wee Wee Homecoming. Now, I didn't know exactly what being a homecoming escort entailed other than morbid embarrassment. I was pretty sure that was, that was part of it. And so I told her, I'll think about it. And I quickly hung up the phone. My mother and father were there in the kitchen and asked what such a strange conversation was that I was having. And, and I began to tell them how that she had broken protocol and that she had asked me to participate in something that I felt very uncomfortable participating in. That she had given me this proposal and, and I had told her I would think about it, which my dad said, your thinking is done. You're going to call her back and tell her yes because it's the right thing to do. <sighs> It's one of those life lessons that your father gives you. It's one of those moments where it's just a dad thing and he looks at you as a son and says, nope, this is what you do. It's the, it's the right thing, whether you want to or not. And I begged and pleaded and I said, I don't want to have to make the phone call. I'll write it down on a note and give it to her best friend tomorrow and let her know. That's how you used to do Hoko Propos, Right? I mean, that's how you handled it. And, and yes, I did end up going there and being on the football field there at Hansville High School and, and there in my football uniform with my elbow cocked out to the side, I walked the 50-yard line with Danita Sullins as they announced my name over the loudspeaker and hers as well. And I, I could hear all my friends and giggles and laughter. But we didn't talk. We smiled, and when it was all over, we went our separate ways, at least until the next note. That's how you do hoko propos. No talking. I guess she and I would have made it really well in the first century. 
But we would have followed proper protocol. We would have known how to do things. And, and probably we also would have been very surprised if we had stumbled upon this well on this particular day and noticed this man, this Jewish man, talking to this Samaritan woman. Jesus talked to the woman about her failed marriages. He talked to the woman about her limited theology. I don't know how long the conversation went on, but probably wanting to put an end to the whole thing, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. This was the way that, that she was just trying to shut things down because Jesus had entered into inappropriate territory, talking to her about the marriages that she had had, the failures that she had had, addressing her and, and trying to answer her question about where was the best place to worship. And she knew that if the conversation goes on any longer, things were going to get heated because it always got heated between Samaritans and Jews, especially when you started to talk about worship. The Messiah is coming. He'll explain everything to us. And I can picture her picking up her water bottle and beginning to make her way back into town. But then for the first time in the story of Jesus, Jesus tells the woman, I am the Messiah. The one you're talking about, the one that you said is going to come and answer all the questions, that's who I am. And with that statement, with that statement, Jesus gives her a proposal. He is inviting her to believe in him. He is inviting her to become part of a new faith community, a community that we call church, in a community the New Testament writers present as being what? The bride of Christ. A man a woman, a well, a proposal, a bride. A proposal that happens most fittingly at a well. See, Jesus went there that day looking for a bride. And he comes looking still for someone to believe and someone who will follow and someone who will be his witness of healing and hope. And so what is so astonishing is that this is precisely what is seen within this woman now. She goes to the town and she pleads, come, come and see the man who has told me everything I have ever done. Come and see. And here we have a Samaritan in the worst of circumstances, a woman with a torturous past, but now she enjoys a remarkable future. She is a witness she is an evangelist for Christ. Behold, the first member of the church in Samaria, the bride of Christ, the Samaritan woman. She is Jesus' first witness to a new generation. So what are the takeaways that we have from this story? What is it that we can kind of take with us and, and begin chewing on a little bit as we consider the best way to connect the next generation to Christ? Well, here's the first thing. The best witness is a familiar witness. The apostles would eventually take the healing and hope of Jesus into 
Samaria and they would be commissioned by Jesus to, to go there specifically and to interact with the Samaritans and to share the good news. But the first invitation for the Samaritans to meet with Jesus came with a very familiar accent. The Samaritans were encouraged to listen to Jesus by one of their own. And to connect the next generation to Christ will require that millennials and Gen Z's witness to their generation. The next generation will be brought to Christ by their peers. It is going to be a familiar voice. It's going to be a shared life experience. It's going to be a similar hurt. These are going to provide the opportunity for an honest hearing. Because the fact of the matter is, there have already been too many bad experiences, and too much hypocrisy, and too much politics. And these things have turned off a generation who have found too little Jesus in church. And so it's going to take those who are in their 20s, those who are in their 30s, those who are in their teens, who have experienced the healing and the hope of Jesus through their association with the bride of Christ to serve as witnesses to young skeptics who are out there saying, is there truly anything to trust? Is there anything left that's good? And while the younger members of our church family actively call their friends and neighbors to consider the call of Jesus, those of us who are older must practice the ways of Jesus in order to be a welcoming faith community. The best witness is a familiar witness. So remember a couple of weeks ago I said, hey, if you're between the ages of, of 9 and 42, I had you stand up and, and we had at least half, maybe even more of our church body that stood up. You need to understand that today is your day. And this is your moment. And this is your time to be able to speak the name of Jesus to your friends and to those that you work with, to those that, that you are in different social organizations with, to those that you see on a regular basis. This is your moment because you are going to have a much greater impact in their life than somebody like me. They're going to listen to you before they listen to the preacher. It's your time. It's your moment. Your friends need a familiar witness. And here's the good news. Anyone can point others to Jesus. Anyone can point others to Jesus. This woman would not have been the first choice of a first century religious search firm looking for someone to introduce Jesus into a, a new cultural market. I mean, surely there was someone else who was more qualified, someone without the baggage, someone with a, with a greater standing within the community. But hear this. Jesus doesn't restrict his call, and neither does he restrict those whom he calls. Not only do we need to encourage every follower of Jesus to speak his name, we need to stop hindering those who desire to do so. The younger generations are very aware that in many houses of worship, leadership and exhortation are segregated by age and by race and by gender. As we begin to read through this story and to think about its implications, this story should send us back to Scripture in order to engage our biases and our preconceptions. The next generation is looking to see if the community of faith, if the church, if the bride of Christ encourages and utilizes the passion and giftedness of every believer 
Or do we invite others to follow and then limit their opportunities to encourage others to see the message and to see Jesus? Anyone can point others to the Messiah. And that brings us to the third takeaway. Discipleship, friends, is the goal for every generation. Discipleship is the goal. The woman sent the townsfolk, young and old, out to see Jesus for themselves. And they would end up spending two days with him, and they would listen to him, and they would learn from him, and they would end up following him. And we must have the same pursuit. All of us, we need to have the same pursuit to meet Jesus, to learn his ways, and to follow him. Meet Jesus, learn his ways, follow him. For too long, religiosity has taken the place of discipleship. The idea, if I just go to church, then everything, I guess, is, is good. In church orthodoxy and practice, well, these things have superseded personal faith and obedience. It's why for many years we have, in our past, been more concerned about converting others to our versions of church than introducing others to our Savior and Christ. And as a result, people have had a hard time seeing Jesus in our religion. The call of Jesus has always been obedient fellowship, bringing the healing and the hope of heaven to a hurting and hapless world. It's the same for every generation. We have all been called to be his followers. And we have all been called to take his message and his ministry. You see, as she was on that day, I think the Samaritan woman is today our teacher. Sending us to Jesus. To stay with him for a few days so that we might learn his ways and, and so that we might follow him. In the hopes that we would leave the well. The hopes that we would leave the well. That, that place where we first are introduced to Jesus and that we would then engage with people who are just like her. People that maybe we do not have a lot in common with. People who our church friends might avoid. People who are spiritual but do not engage in our religious traditions. People who need Jesus. Friends, Jesus chose the Samaritan woman. And as Tim mentioned earlier, he has chosen us. And like her, we are the bride of Christ. We're the church. And we are the witnesses to current and future generations. Because Jesus is still looking for someone to believe. Jesus is still looking for someone who will follow. Jesus is still looking for, for someone who would be his instrument of healing and hope. And so what I want us to do is to go and follow the woman from this place and share Jesus' proposal. Because there is someone who knows everything that we've ever done and yet loves us anyway. Shouldn't we want to go and encourage other people to follow him, right? I mean, maybe, maybe we need to do this. Maybe I need to do this in a different way. Excuse me, Wesley. By the way, we're going to sing Waymaker, yes. right? 
And when we sing Waymaker, that's going to be an opportunity for us to, um, that's going to be an opportunity for us to respond to the goodness of Jesus, right? That's going to be an opportunity for us to respond to a proposal. That's going to be an opportunity for us to say, you know what? And we've got a message and we've got a ministry. That's going to be the opportunity for us to say, Jesus, I hear your proposal. I hear it. I hear it. And I accept. Do you this morning? If you do, get on your feet. Give praise to God. And let's go reach the next generation for him.